is Amanda Bakker. I'm energy correspondent at Energy Intelligence Group here in Dubai. Today, I'm joined by Oliver Klaus, bureau chief in Dubai, and we'll be talking about a very hot topic, Iran and the escalating tensions in the region. So let's get right into it. Um, Oliver, the question on everybody's minds, is there going to be a war in this region? Yeah, thanks, Amanda. So, um I think that's a question a lot of people are asking themselves at the moment. Uh, certainly a question, you know, we're being asked here uh, uh, by people involved in the region, doing business in the region, um, by people on the ground. I really do think it depends on who you talk to. Um, I think what we do know is that, um, or what I think is the case, that I haven't seen tensions as high in this region um, since I've been covering it, which is really more than 15 years. Um, I think everybody is pretty much on edge and I think one of the reasons is um, a lot of the sort of conventional wisdoms that we used to apply when it comes to the region, they don't really apply anymore. I think uh, some of the decision making on the ground has changed. So we've seen, for example, um, you know, with the uh, emergence of the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, um, that the, the old ways of decision making as we knew it um, uh, they don't exist anymore. Uh, we see a lot more impulsive decision making. I think. Um, yeah, don't forget the Trump tweeting, the, this very disruptive uh, Trump uh, tweet. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's another factor playing into this. We have we have the Trump factor. Exactly true. Um, and so it's uh, uh, it's gotten more complex. At the same time, you have the UAE and Saudi Arabia for the first time involved uh, uh, both jointly in a military conflict in Yemen. Um, that's not something people, you know, that used to do business with the region were used to. Um, the, the Gulf has always been seen as a sort of uh, um, safe haven in a, in a pretty volatile region. Um, and we had the, uh, uh, obviously, the Qatar crisis, uh, Qatar frozen out by Saudi Arabia and the UAE. That happened overnight. People didn't have that on the radar. So I think some of the conventional thinking um, or understanding of the region doesn't apply anymore. And um, that, that means it's gotten more difficult um, to predict what's going to happen. There's a lot more uncertainty. Plus, you have a number of new stakeholders and, and players on the ground. You know, you have Russia playing a different role. You have Turkey playing a different role. Um, so back to the original question, will there be a war? Um, personally, I don't think we're, we're close to a war. But I think we're uh, in a situation where uh, tensions are so high that um, you know an, an escalation could happen by accident literally you know it could be provoked it could be someone making a wrong call firing a rocket uh, at a target um, let's say you know that hits an, an, an American target and kills US soldiers um, even though there wasn't a real intention you know these things could happen and I think then it becomes difficult possibly to prevent it from spiraling out of control and I think um, this is what the risk is at the moment, uh, but I don't see, you know, us being close to a war as we stand. And don't forget, I mean, there's definitely um, some movement, uh, or s there are calls for de-escalation, let's say, by the United Arab Emirates, right, where uh, um, Foreign Affairs Minister uh, uh, Al Gagash has, has specifically called for everybody to calm down, sit down, and. Uh, Escalate. It's interesting you mentioned the escalation, but um, what kind of response have you seen from Iran so far? Have they been de-escalating too, or do they want a war? 
good question. Again, I do think it depends on the perspective. Um, I think for the Iranians, it's pretty pretty simple. You know, we got to go back to the status quo ante, which is you know to the JCPOA. Then we're ready to talk. We cannot talk while we're being bullied and pressured uh, by the Americans. And I mean, I think clearly Trump and his administration have ramped up pressure, right? I mean, they have uh, imposed new sanctions. Um, you know, more recently on petrochemical exports, just a few days ago on the Supreme Leader, which are pretty controversial. Um, so Iran is under a lot of pressure. And I think from an Iranian perspective, they've actually been very constrained. Um, they have stuck to the JCPOA, the nuclear deal agreement. Um, they have continued to talk with the Europeans, but they've also very clearly said, you know, unless Europe steps up and helps us, um, you know, support our economy by facilitating trade, buying oil, oil through the new trade mechanisms they have put in place in stacks. Unless this happens, um, you know, there's no reason for us to, to stay in the JCPOA. So they have set deadlines um, that expire in, in uh, early July, uh, whereby they would uh, start increasing enrichment again, for example. Um, and so this, you know, can be seen as a provocation, you know, by some. From an Iranian perspective, it's just a logical consequence to, um, you know, what what has been happening since Donald Trump withdrew from the nuclear agreement in May 2018. So um, we had to, we had obviously the downing of the U.S. drone again. You know, it depends on where you stand, and we don't have, I think, all the facts. You know, was the drone um, the U.S. spy drone in uh, Iranian airspace or not? The Iranians say it was, so they were justified in and shooting it down. That was pretty um, definitive targeting. I mean, they just had one strike and the drone was down. Yes. Uh, what does that say about their military Actually, capabilities? Yeah, very good, a very good point. And I, um, uh, I had uh, this conversation with someone yesterday. Um, I think it just shows that the Iranians have really developed their military capabilities significantly uh, uh, over the past decade or so. Um, I mean, that uh, drone, according to my understanding at least, uh, uh, was very high up, what, 60,000 feet or so. Uh, the Iranians apparently hit it with like a, a, a single rocket. So, um, you know, what, that, what I understand is that this isn't something you just do easily. Um, and I do think that uh, uh, it's something that probably worries the Americans and its allies, you know, that Iran does have this kind of capability. And in terms of the economy, Oliver, how are the sanctions or U.S. pressures playing out in Iran? Um, has it really impacted the economy or is it just U.S. propaganda that we're reading in the media about Iran being really squeezed? Yeah, um, no, it definitely has impacted uh, the Iranian economy. Um, I think, you know, when, when the nuclear deal came into force in uh, early 2016, um, there were huge hopes that, uh, you know, after a period of international sanctions, this, provide, this would provide a real stimulus. And, you know, Iranians were able to ramp up the oil production uh, and, and condensate production and the exports pretty quickly. Um, and uh, that helped. But a lot of the U.S. secondary sanctions remained in place, which always meant that they couldn't really reap the full benefits of the uh, nuclear deal, partly because U.S. dollar transactions were still complicated and so on. Um, uh, still, the economy uh, grew at relatively uh, good rates. 
since uh, the withdrawal of the US from the uh, JCPOA, um, things have gotten definitely much tougher. I mean, we'll, we'll probably get to the oil export separately. They have, they have obviously slumped. Um, you know, we had huge pressures on the Iranian currency with inflation rates uh, in the two digits. Uh, this year, inflation could reach 40%. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the products Iranians used to import have become very expensive and or have gotten more difficult to get into the country. The Iranians I speak to, they basically universally say um, it's much tougher than under previous have sanctions. Have their salaries been slashed, for example? Are they, um, what kind of pressures are they feeling on an individual? Yeah, I think it's really the inflationary pressures in particular. Uh, I mean, I've spoken to people who said their, literally their pensions, their life savings have, you know, been diminished by, by inflation. Um, you know, they, they, they're saying meat prices are doubling, tripling every couple of weeks, you know, they can, can't afford to buy certain things. Uh, they can't afford to buy even locally manufactured cars in Iran because they have just gotten too expensive. I mean, um, it, it's just very, very difficult, even for people who used to be on, you know, on decent incomes. You know, this, I'm talking to people that, uh, I'm talking about people that had, uh, um, you know, have, uh, by Iranian standards, good incomes, but it's, it's very, very tough. And um, I think, uh, uh, you know, for a lot of Iranians, um, the, the problem is that it's not only that economic conditions are difficult, it's also there doesn't seem to be uh, much light at the end of the tunnel at the moment. And that makes it even more difficult. And then above all this, now you have this looming threat of a military escalation. And that, that you know, that creates a lot of anxieties in the country. We've seen, I mean, some of the forces that started up the Arab Spring in the, in the, um, the Gulf countries was economics, basically. People not being able to afford mm. certain things and basic goods, as you mentioned, meat. So do you think that's enough for the Iranian people to have some kind of internal revolt? And what are the dynamics internally? Mm. Is there more leaning towards um, extremism at this point? Yeah, good question. I think um, uh, for Iranians, Right now, um, there isn't there isn't really a desire to overthrow the regime. Um, they, there are demonstrations from all that we know, you know, including in Tehran. People are upset about the state of the economy, and they're voicing that concern. So, this is happening. It's not really aimed at overthrowing the regime, at uh, uh, launching another revolution. Um, and part of the reason is, I think. What we have seen, you know, as the pressure on Iran has built, Iranians have sort of edged closer together, um, facing, you know, a joint external uh, uh, enemy. And uh, so that's one reason why um, I think they aren't really targeting uh, or venting the anger at, at the regime and, and the, the system as such. Um, at the same time, uh, uh, they're concerned that if that were to happen, you know, things could get much worse than they already are. I mean, people saying basically, yeah, we're not happy, you know, we're suffering. Um, we're, a lot of people are saying we're not happy with the regime, you know. We're also not happy with the government, which is perceived to not be doing enough to um, 
make lives easier for people despite the outside pressures. Do they have but, an alternative, Oliver? I mean, is there some candidate out there that they are backing, or? I mean, I, yeah. I mean, we'll get. Let, let we get to this. I just want to add one more point. So I think they're scared that the country is going to turn out to be another Syria, another Yemen, and it seems that people really don't want this. I think in terms of. Um, Alternative candidates will have to see. I mean, the Rouhani government uh, is uh, Rouhani. President Rouhani was re-elected in 2017. You know, he has uh, more time uh, uh, to go. There will be parliamentary elections in Iran next year. That could give us some guidance as to which directions, or, or, yeah, which direction Iranians are leaning in terms of towards the moderate reformist side or the hardline side. Um, there isn't at this point a candidate as such. I mean, you know, certain names are being uh, dropped potentially as uh, contenders, but I think it's maybe um, a little early to, to speculate at this point. But you know, uh, if you're if you're looking at the popularity of some uh, re revolutionary guard uh, commanders, for example, um, it, you know, it it would be feasible that. Um, Uh, one of those maybe entered uh, the race, you know, with the support of the supreme leader, of, obviously, but uh, it's a bit early to say, uh, you know, as I think. Okay, let's get on to the oil. Um, have they been able uh, to export their oil? And let's uh, let's talk about the quantities as well. How much of uh, their oil sales have slumped? So um, I think it's been. It's been really tough for the Iranians getting the oil out overall. So um, before Trump pulled out of the JCPOA in May uh, last year, Iranian exports were averaging uh, more than two million barrels per day uh, every month. Uh, since you know, not exactly since lifting of the sanctions, but probably since about uh, February March uh, 2016. So. Um, the, uh, uh, the Iranians achieved a pretty high level of oil exports uh, soon after um, the, the JCPOA came into force. Now, after the withdrawal of the U.S. from the agreement, um, we saw a sort of steady decline um, uh, that accelerated in, uh, uh, in November when a second set of energy-related sanctions kicked in. Uh, so we had a set of sanctions kicking in in August. They were mostly focused uh, at the financial sector and a few other sectors. And then in November, the uh, energy sanctions kicked in. Um, so we saw certain buyers already um, with, you know, stopping orders in October, um, late September, October, uh, mostly European buyers. Um, but also the Japanese, uh, others reduced their volumes. And we had the surprise move by the Trump administration to issue waivers, which hadn't been anticipated. Um, now, under the waivers, um, Iran's traditional customers uh, uh, basically were allowed to keep buying at a certain uh, level, at a, at a, a reduced level, as we understand. Um, and they made use of that. So we, uh, you know, once new orders were placed, uh, in particular by the Japanese and the Koreans for condensate, um, we saw an uptick uh, in, in January. Um, 
so oil exports, you know, uh, jumped uh, back to above one million barrels per day. Um, and, uh, you know, once it became clearer that the waivers might not be extended, um, they started to, um, well, basically buyers started to uh, uh, wind down their, their orders or stopped altogether. So um, when waivers kicked in in May, uh, there were basically hardly any um, orders in place for the Iranians to, 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 uh, to ship. And does that mean that they have to slow down their production from the fields? Are they shutting down fields? What does that mean? So just to add a number, I mean, so over the, you know, from above 1 million barrels per day in January, um, oil sales to end users, so that doesn't include condensate and it doesn't, and does, it doesn't include shipments that go to, uh, into storage facilities, let's say outside Iran or um, oil that's just sitting uh, on tankers. So this has come down to less than 200,000 uh, barrels per day. I mean, according to the Iranians, and you know, we speak to NIOC frequently, um, there they haven't been any official liftings since late April, basically. So this is pretty much in line with what the Trump administration originally wanted to achieve, um, you know, taking Iranian oil exports to zero. Um, in terms of production, uh, you know, it, it, it used to, or it was at about um, 3.9, 3.95 million barrels per day um, uh, before Trump withdrew uh, from, from the nuclear agreement. Uh, you know, we're estimating it to be at about 2.3, 2.4 million barrels per day at the moment. The bulk of it goes into domestic refining. Some of it will go into storage while there is storage capacity. But you know, it gives you an indication that uh, there is very little oil left to, to leave the country. Um, Oliver, my last question to you is about something we've been hearing a little bit from traders, this Iranian crude cocktail. What is this? Are they disguising their crude? How are they mixing it? Just walk me through on what's happening. Yeah, it's a good question. I think so. Basically, what we're seeing is the Iranians, you know, seem to be involved in, in, in disguising certain shipments uh, um, leaving the country. There are uh, apparently... Um, as we understand certain shipments, uh, um, you know, reaching destinations with uh, uh, Iraqi um, bills of uh, Iraqi stamp bills of laden, for example, um, that uh, that's certainly the case for fuel oil, as we understand it. Um, it seems to be the case uh, for Iranian oil too, and what does appear to happen is um, there's a lot more blending taking place to disguise where the uh, crude originates from. So let's quickly go back to exports. What does that mean for Iranian exports if they're disguising their crude? Okay, so I think, you know, the Iranians will be able to um, you get, get some volumes out of the country, uh, whether it's fuel oil or, or some crude oil, but I don't think we're really talking about uh, meaningful quantities. So nothing that will generate the, the sort of revenue um, that the government really needs. Um, but yes, I mean, most likely um, oil and, and uh, fuel oil, for example, will continue to flow, uh, uh, but at a very limited uh, uh, level. 
Um, so I think we can't really expect uh, any uptick in Iranian uh, oil exports, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. And based on, you know, the lifting schedules, at least the official ones that, that you know, uh, um, we are being told about, you know, there is nothing really officially lined up. And if this is the case with exports, how long do you think that the Iranians could withstand this level of pressure? I mean, like I said, I think, um, you know, the, the, the Iranians already face a lot of economic pressure. The inability to sell their oil is, is continuing to, um, to fuel those pressures, so things won't get any easier for Iran. I still don't think that the country is close to falling apart as a result. I mean, I think in a way Iran is probably uh, best placed to, to deal with this type of sanctions just because you know, they've been through it for, for many, many years before and um, they, they have the experience, they have become much more self-sufficient in, you know, in a lot of um, sectors uh, compared to other countries. It's a much more diversified economy. Diversified economy. Um, the uh, Supreme Leader has long sort of argued that the Iranian resistance economy, as he terms it, needs to be, um, you know, built out and uh, more efforts need uh, to go into, uh, um, you know, developing this type of resistance. So, and they uh, produce everything domestically, don't they? They uh, produce uh, almost uh, all their products. Yes, I mean, uh, Certainly when you compare it to other economies in the Middle East, uh, like I said, it's much more diversified. Uh, they, they have um, a whole range of industries that you don't find in other parts of the region. So yeah, they're, they're producing a lot more products um, compared to others. Oliver, I'll go back to my first question. Should we pack our bags? Should we get out of here? Is a war going to start given everything that you've told me today? Well, you know, I, I, I stick with what I, uh, with what I said in the beginning. I think uh, right now, um, I really don't think uh, that we're uh, close to um, a situation where a war breaks out. I think, you know, we've seen those calls for de-escalation. Um, uh, at the same time, yes, it remains uh, uh, difficult, you know, to predict just because there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think, um, you know, uh, once, um, certain dynamics get into play, it's difficult to, uh, to stop them, meaning, um, you know, there could be provocations that uh, lead to um, tit-for-tat reactions that lead to uh, a greater escalation. But I think at this point, um, I don't think, uh, I don't expect this to happen. We'll see if you change your mind next week. Shall we pick this up next week? We'll pick it up again in a week. Thanks. Okay, thank you.